Hey, this is the Battle Proof Podcast at the Blue Wire Studios at Wynn Las Vegas. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Awesome, man. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Just wanted to like, comment on your shirt, Dirt Co. What's all that about? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, we were talking earlier. I mean, this is this is our clothing brand that we started for off-roaders. Uh. Um, we we're just tired of seeing everybody dressed in surf stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and they Cooks, don't surf. Yeah. We're like, hey, like, why aren't you wearing off-road stuff? And most of them were, you know, were just doesn't exist. So, you know, we started this brand particularly for us to wear. And then it kind of manifested from there, and now it's, you know, significant. And, uh, you know, we do basically product releases pretty much monthly now. Really? So, oh, like, like drops. Do you do, like, drops? Exactly. That's the big thing now, right? You yeah. do a drop and you sell everything in one go. Well, right. what we realize is because the changes in fashion, it's people aren't waiting to buy something. They're not like, oh, let's wait and see what comes out in spring, you know. They wake up every day and they want to purchase something new. And so it's it's pretty much on 24-7 now. And uh, it, and it's fun because, you know, we're making products that uh, we like. And in some cases, they they solve problems that we have. Like we, we have these amazing socks that are made from <laughs> bamboo that, oh, yeah? that are antimicrobial. And, uh, Broke it down bamboo, not like. Yeah. <laughs> So, but the, they're antimicrobial, so you can wear them pre-running for a week and they don't smell. Ah, and so I don't know if cool. you've ever been in a in a tour van or a car with somebody with a well, bunch it's of just dudes. like a normal day, like taking your sneakers off is pretty bad. Like, well, yeah, so like if you're in a van and like touring or something, and like, with four dudes over the period of yeah, a couple yeah. of days, that wouldn't be good. You're in Mexico, so you may or may not have showers, and it gets a little funky. So. I'm a germaphobe and <laughs> I don't like to smell people. So uh, yeah, I, f I figured out these socks and that's just like one of the things that we have. That is cool. Yeah. That is cool. Like, like all different size socks, like, um, like no show and then like up to the ankles or what's the vibe on that? No, it's they're black socks. They're super yeah. simple, right? We have a couple other colors. Like we just launched some American flag socks and some Mexican flag socks because uh, we can't, not include Mexico because our you know our culture started in Baja. Yeah, let's 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 talk about. So, your name is Matt Martelli. It is your your brother Josh. is yep. Josh. You own a media company called Mad Media. Yes, right. And like, is that is that kind of? And we're talking about off roading in general. Sure. Hence, dirt being in the dirt. Like, how did you and your brother like kind of roll? Before we go back in the day, how did you, you and your brother kind of roll into the media side of things? Uh, you know, we grew up in action sports, and you start skateboarding, and it, it's pretty much people hand you a camera at some point. And, uh, you know, very early on skating, you know, first it was, uh, first it was a, a, a regular camera, and then it was, you know, video or film back then. And big, uh, big chunky, heavy camera. Yeah, yeah crazy. Yeah. You know, we're running around with, like, Bolexes and – you know, 16 and 35 mil, like all these eight millimeter film. Um, but that was the beginning of it. And, uh, I, I really love, um, I really love creativity. I really love, uh, I'm a terrible illustrator. So I took to photography like right away Okay. and I just fell in love with it. And, you know, the idea of communicating, you know, through an image to me is something that's very, that's very special, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you if you can make yourself good enough to do it with still photography, 
then doing it with video is actually easier. Yeah, I agree with that. So, you know, I love both mediums, you know, and so starting out at a young age shooting, you know, my friends skateboarding and who ended up becoming pretty big professional skateboarders, uh, you know, it started with that. And then, you know, it just went on to that from there. It's it's like a drug. You're like, oh, man, if, if we get this camera, we can do this. And then, you know, it's editing, you know, when we started, it was analog and then it became digital. So that was a whole thing of like, wow, now one guy with one camera and one computer can make a movie, really. You know, like you, right. you have greater control. Uh, and, and that still goes on to this day. I mean, we're I was just with my guys earlier and we we're just going back and forth about some of our next camera purchases and why we want, you know, this red camera versus, you know, this black magic camera. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we started this company with, uh, or I started this company uh, after working at advertising agencies and, and working at um, uh, skateboard brands. And both of them kind of drove me crazy because the, the skateboard brands were very like haphazard, like, Hey, we have an ad due today. What are we going to do? You know, who's got a photo? Okay. That's what it is. Right. They were very mm -hmm. reactionary, but the upside of it was that they could pivot immediately as trends changed. Right. So then I went to work for ad agencies and they were very stoic and planned out years in advance. And even though a, a trend might've changed, you know, they were, they were like, Nope, we're not. Oh, really? This was the plan. No way. You know, and I'm like, well, that's stupid. Like, yeah. everything's changed, right? Right. So, so that type of stuff kind of frustrated you. Yeah, so I thought if I could combine the discipline of traditional advertising with the guerrilla, guerrilla marketing tactics of, of skate culture, then I have something different, right? And that was the formation of Mad Media. And I, and I also wanted to be able to control all the mediums, like, uh, you know, climbing up to an art director level at a very young age was great, but it was also super frustrating because you would hand somebody your idea to translate into web or into television or film and they would not get it. And a, a lot of times there are older people um, who had their kind of preset ways of like, you know, I, I can imagine like right now some 20 year old kid handed me a concept, you know, me being 50, I might go, Oh, I'm going to tweak it a little bit. Yeah. And that's exactly what's going on. But, and, and it bothered me, you know, they didn't see the vision that I had for the piece of creative that we were creating. And so I started, you know, working in those other mediums because I wanted to see that messaging through. And, um, I also didn't subscribe to the idea that, you know, if you're creative, you're only creative in one area. I, I don't think that that's true. I think if you're creative, you don't really know how many different spaces you can be in creative in, right. and you should explore that. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't know. You might be, yeah. You might be the best musician, you know, and you're a graphic designer, you know, or you might be, you know, a photographer and you know, uh, a really good painter, right? I, I don't think that you can box creativity in. In fact, I think the more you explore it, the better you get the more expressive you get, the more ideas you get. So that's why I started Mad Media, and uh, and it worked. Is there like, a reason, like, using the word mad? Because, like, maybe other people think it's mad, but maybe you got you don't? No, it, it actually, the idea comes from um, a book that later on became Blade Runner, and uh, the book was called Do Androids Dream of Ro Robot Sheep? And there's a, 
there's a passage in that book that talks about, you know, advertising will become, you know, completely overwhelming. And at some point, the only messaging that will cut through is the truly mad media. Mm. So uh, that's where I got the, the concept from was, you know, uh, you know, Philip K. Dick and, and, you know, his writings and just the idea of where we are going with, you know, with content. And it's obviously it's somewhat come true, right? Right, right. Uh, with social media, it's like, how do you create something that gets people's attention? Yeah, and like social media now, like <clears throat> when you're talking about the ad agencies, planning things out for like months or maybe even uh, into the next year, that just doesn't, you, that you can still have that mindset, but like now it's like instant. Well, like people creating content now, like I think the first thing, nothing to do with sports was like, when people saw tsunamis for the first time. Sure. Because people had phones and stuff. It's like, I, I've never even heard a tsunami until I saw it on the news. Right. And that I think that's where it kind of started. So it's like now it is a tsunami of media. Like it's just like nonstop. Like it's, you, you can't keep up with it. Well, it, it also democratized it. I mean, you look at it, it's one of the things I laugh at now is like some of the best creators are coming out of these third worlds. Like, these African kids, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're like that. I mean, they're, they're out performing entire, you know, ad agencies. Right. Right. Yeah. And I love that. Like I love impressions the, and views and stuff. Yeah. I just love the punk rockness of it, of like, you know, what if you could go hand kids all over the world cameras and see what happens, see what they do with it. And that's really kind of what's happening. That's what happened now with TikTok. Like the biggest stars are doing stuff right out of their bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah, you don't need the studio or the gnarly cameras and all that stuff. It just it it distills back down to the idea, you know. Although the 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 contrary part of it is that now we also see a lot of terrible terrible content, right? right. So in in one sense, it's like it's taking the filter off, so everything is mixed together. You can choose what you want to watch. That's the good thing about the phones. I guess why everyone's head is just down because they're just looking at content they want to see. And it's like how rare, like. When do you really watch TV? Like now you go on TV and like every TV station is like, it's an app. So YouTube is an app. And so you can just watch whenever, you, you know, whatever you want, whenever you want. And, but then it's just like, maybe the hardest thing to do now is like, who's going to like your content? Like you, in fact, like even when you put content out, you don't know who's going to like it. Like I'm from, I'm, you know, I'm from the record business um, before I went into like media myself and I can remember like being in the studio and you know, it's getting to like do the final mix of that record. A lot of people I was working with going, Oh, it's not right yet. Still needs this, still needs that. And I was, I was like the guy going, it's ready. Let's put it out. Let's see if people are going to like it. I think that's the hardest thing to do with content. So like when, when you were mentioning earlier at an ad agency, you're a young kid, you've got these real cool ideas, but the older guy, is like saying, mm, maybe not that frustration. You, you, you're forming a new company from that. Now, how long it took you to do everything might have been like 10 years, 20 years. Now you could probably do it in one year, two years with the speed. Sure. Yeah? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting evolution because it's like, it's like one of these things where now the tools are more accessible. Yeah. So you're getting great content and you're getting terrible content it's it's music right. is an interesting one because you know and this would be a good this would be a good conversation because you're from the music industry is that 
I, I don't think Napster killed the music industry. I think the music industry killed itself by putting out too much garbage. Um, we did a lot of work for Virgin Records, and, and uh, they had some great artists, but the majority of their artists were terrible, mm. right? And they were copies of somebody else who had had a hit. And so they did this thing where, you know, if you had a DMX who was successful, they would have 20 other really wacky like DMX versions uh, and they would all like, yeah, cool. This is the that's market. so distinctive DMX though. Like right? to do a copycat DMX, it's like, who's going to want that? Well, that's it to us. That's obvious. <laughs> but like, I'm also a person who like, I'm opinionated. I go into a room and listen to an album and I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I don't, I also haven't spent a hundred thousand dollars producing that album. Yeah. So I'm, I can be objective. Right. Um, I just think that, you know, content is content and it's either good or bad. And, and for sure there's content that appeals to different people, but I think when you produce good content, uh, you know, like right. uh, the best example I'll use is when, when we produced and directed the first Jim Connor, we, we didn't know what it was going to do. We knew that it was good. Mm. Right. But it's kind of like I liken it to like Metallica putting out Ride the Lightning. There was no audience for that type of music. Yeah. There was no business plan for it. It was like, hey, we produce something that you just we wanted think, to do it. Yeah. They're like, look, we produce something we think is really badass and we're going to share it with everybody. And if they like it, great. If not, you know, and the purity of what they created, it created a market, it created a culture that then you know, X amount of bands then followed, right? Yeah. But, like, when you go back to that time period of, like, when they put that album out, it was like there was no there's no market for it at all. Right. You know? So that's, that's an important idea of, like, just let creatives be creative. Not everything is going to be a giant hit record, but those ideas feed off of one another and will create great content. Yeah. Well, I think, like, when you're talking about music or, you know, any form of creativity, it's – analog to digital that 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 kind of transition and progression was like was was kind of crazy sure. you know like in the music business um when like you had like the mp3 and you, you bring up napster sure um you could say you know like with Napster, you had this like Metallica was like, really against Napster, right? Because yeah. everyone was like downloading. Well, at least their drummer was. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, I mean, yeah, that was crazy. And then, but really, the downfall of the music business, kind of from my point of view, being in the record business at that time and selling a decent amount of records as an independent label, is um, you know going to digital at the time when the agreements came up and the money came up, you would. Like, you know, if you sign, well, if you sign a recording agreement back in the day, it would be like, for like the agreement would say like worldwide, it could be worldwide and the universe and any territories that may happen in the future. Sure. Right. So when the MP3, the MP3 thing came along, it was like, it was such a new thing that the record companies, they were getting, oh, you, we'll sign the digital rights, the digital rights was like Mars back then. Right. And everyone signed them, all all the major record labels, all the big independent labels, everything. Like we were signing, we were a very small label, and we were getting offered like 25000 an album, and this is just instrumental jazz music um, from a company called eMusic. Right. And they were like doing these huge big deals and stuff. And all the record labels did it because it was free money. Right. But what they didn't realize is that well, that was the future and yeah. that was going to become... 
like the record industry. Yeah. So I don't know, like, mm, is there something like that now that people don't realize that they should realize now? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think con digital, like video content in particular is, is that right. So like when you look at, you know, th the tradition of, of television and movie studios yeah. and the, the archive, the archive of content that they built up that still plays on television to this day, you know, um, it's valuable, you know, like it's funny because one of the guys through off road racing that I became friends with was John Langley who produced the television show cops. Okay. And you know, it's a it was the first reality, you know, big show. Then. Yeah. And it just, it's goes on in perpetuity because people are always going to get into trouble. Right. <laughs> um, but that was his thing is he's like, man, like this back catalog that we own just, just massive. Right. And so I can go to any country, any, you know, television network, any digital network and go, Hey, I've got, you know, 8 million hours of content and uh, you know, what do you give me for it? Right. Mm. So like, and, and, and even that that's unscripted, you know, reality show stuff. Like um, when you produce good content, it's, it's got value, you know, and you need to understand that. And as you go forward, um, you know, you need to understand you're building a, a back catalog, just like a recording artist. It's like, you know, now you're starting to see these, you know, purchases of legacy musicians like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and what they're getting for their back catalog because, you know, in a hundred years, people are still going to listen to the Beatles. Right. You know what I mean? So they, they created something that's so good that it's going to stand the test of time. And it'll be sampled and referred to and copied and so on and so forth. So I think that's true of, of you know, video content or cinematography as well, you know. And, you know, whether you're producing like the doc series that you did or whether you're producing, you know, major films or, or what have you, you know, you need to go in kind of with that organizational mindset. Yeah. It's kind of hard to yeah, – when you're doing an album – or a film, obviously it takes a lot more time than doing like a quick TikTok dance in your bedroom, right? Sure. And it's also like on the documentary side of things, it's like you know, maybe that's becoming a bit of an old format, but everyone likes a good story. So I think like, you know, that's how Netflix kind of really built their kind of brand, right? With all these kind of like documentaries on murderers and stuff like that. It's kind of like that's how they build it, right? Sure. And um but yeah, so if we go back to the dirt company yeah. <laughs> and Mad Media, back to the dirt. Yeah, back to the dirt. Let's talk about dirt. Um, so starting that media company, like since Mad Media is like two people, you, you and your brother. Like, um, although your brother's not here, like, how, how is he as passionate about the dirt as you, or is he like more kind of like on the business end of things, and you just wanted to do things as brothers, or were you? Like how how far apart are you in age? Like were you always uh, doing stuff together? Or? We were all we grew up together. We okay. we're very close. We're two years apart. Okay, I mean, yes. You know, we we moved from Michigan from Kalamazoo here. I was twelve, he was ten. So that I think made us even closer because, you know, it's like we we're pretty much landing on Mars when we got to Southern California. Yeah, yeah. You know, I went to a school that there was, you know, three, Was it just like the desert back then or something? Like not a lot. Not a lot. Yeah, I mean, we compared to now. I mean, you know, talk about culture shock. I mean, we lived on the uh, west side of Kalamazoo, Michigan, which was 
predominantly a black neighborhood. And then we moved to El Cajon, which there are no black people there, right? Yeah. And, uh, um, it, but we walked into, you know, skateboarding, uh, off-road culture, uh, surfing. Like, it, it was just magical. It was, like, literally a time in the 80s where people, like, the neighbors would give you, hey, here's a three-wheeler. You know, like, now it's, like, you would never give your neighbor kid a three-wheeler, right. right? And you could probably just, like, go in the back door, grab a can of Coke or something. Yeah, we, and... would, we would drive, you know, three-wheelers around the streets of El Cajon, wave at the cops, go get a 12-pack for our dad at the at the liquor store. They wouldn't even ask us for money. They're like, oh, the Martelli kids, they're good for it. They put a little, <laughs> you know, a little notch down so when your dad showed back up, he'd pay for the beer or whatever. So it was, you know, a completely magical time. And we had you know, world champion off-roaders around us, motocross racers, you know, some musicians and movie stars, right? So it was really like, it was just crazy. And 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 then it was like, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, let's go to Glamis. What are you doing this weekend? Let's go skate Del Mar. Uh, what are you doing this weekend? Let's go to Baja. Like there was so much to do that was just spectacular. In country drop, there's not many places you can do that, no. right? So, like, boom, boom, yeah. maybe Europe. But. Yeah, and and even now, I mean, that's the magic of Southern California. That's why it's spawned so many trends is that we don't mm. have winter, right? And we have this crazy accessibility uh, of, you know, the mountains, the deserts, you know, the beach, you know, all within an hour drive, right? So it's got this, this energy about it that's pretty special. And then, you know, through through growing up in it and then also doing some of the research, I, I began to understand why we had so much technical innovation in off-road racing, which was born out of hot rod culture, but was also being generated by the, um, you know, by the uh, aerospace industry here, mm. you know? So we had, we have all these geniuses, right. you know, from the aerospace industry who like look at, you know, guys working on their cars and they're like, I know how to make that faster. <laughs> Way faster. That's cool. You know, we're designing rocket ships and planes and, you know, weapons war and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, building a fast off-road vehicle or a hot rod is pretty easy comparatively. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it just, you know, we were chatting a little bit earlier too. Like you also had these people around you who were seemingly like magic and kind of unstoppable like Mickey Thompson. Like when you distill it down, you realize like this guy ran a printing press and for some reason thought that he could build a vehicle to go set the land speed record and build beat factories. Why do you, th why did he want to do that? Because he's American. It sounds badass, right? <laughs> if you could be the guy that did that, if you, if you, so he must've seen something on TV or something. Yeah. If you had that idea, yeah. right. If you literally are like, Hey, if we take these two and I, I'm probably going to screw it up. Danny Thompson, his son is a friend of mine, uh, and also a, a off-road racer and land speed record holder. But I, I think they took two Cadillac engines and just put them in line. That was his idea. It's like, wow, you know, the, the, the British are doing it their way with their British engines, but we have way more, you know, horsepower because of, of the engines that we build in America. They just have more throughput, right? Yeah. They're bigger engines, you know. They're heavier, but, you know, there's no replacement for displacement, right? And going in a straight line as well. Yeah, so he did that, and he went out and set the land speed record. A car that he literally drew on the floor in his garage, 
and then built it, you know, with the help of a couple friends. And then I think, and I, obviously I wasn't there for it, but I think once you do something like that, it's like this flame, this this fire where you're like, huh. You've set something, you've set everyone thinking around you. Yeah. Like then you maybe probably want to beat your own record. So so when you when you grow up and you're like, oh, you're you know, Mickey wasn't my neighbor or anything like that. He was, you know, uh, uh, in Southern California, but we were growing up and seeing all the things that he did and other people like him. It just manifests this idea of like, oh, like you could do seemingly anything. And then you'd run into like we went to visit the tennis shop and they're like they're making they're they're making you know, off-road race cars in the shop. And we're like, holy shit. You know what I mean? Like, this is incredible, right? Like, how, how old are you when it's kind of going down? Uh, early, early teens, right? Yeah. So, like... So, everything's amazing. Everything's and then see, amazing. And then seeing that is like, whoa. Right. But but when you talk to the average person, you know, and they're like, you know, talking about something, and you're like, no, no, Bob, down the street, he yeah. makes cars. Down in his garage. In his garage. Not, not like, buys them and and tweaks on them, but yeah. fabricates the frame, you know, basically builds everything except for the engine and transmission later on. We're, you know, we're building those too, because we want more capability. So it, it was, it's off-roading is a pretty incredible culture to grow up in because you have all these people who are high level problem solvers, very intelligent people. And most of them aren't schooled. They, they, they're not engin- engineers they didn't go get a master's degree. They're, they're literally, you know, high school graduates who are like, man, you know, I'm tired of peeing blood. We should probably make better shocks. Right. Right. That's where Fox shocks came from. Okay. John Marking raced the Mint 400 and, you know, won it. And it beat him up so bad. He went to his friend that made motorcycle shocks and was like, how do we make the car better? Because I'm watching what you guys are doing in motorcycles. And now... Fox, that division of Fox is a $2 billion company. Yeah. The, um, like, shocks is obviously a big thing <laughs> in Massive. off-road. Like, I can remember going um, ATVing, um, like, kind of, it, it, like, north of Tennessee somewhere. Uh, never been on ATV, did BMX as a kid and stuff, went on this ATV. It was amazing. Like, as long as you just go, like, my way was just like full throttle, just go up the hills, down the hills, over rocks, everything. And this machine let me do whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. I kind of did see some people like maybe like not crash, but maybe topple over or something because I just think like they just weren't going fast enough. You know, I think you got to keep the vehicle moving forward is like the key. Sure. Um, but the suspension, it was like, it was, it was, I mean, I was ATVing for like, like five hours or something was the whole course, got back to camp and stuff. Never thought I was tired or anything. Don't even think I pulled over really to drink anything or anything. It was like the most amazing experience I've ever had. It was like way better than like going on a jet ski or something. It's that's what makes us special is like when you look at the vehicles that we build and race, yeah. they're not the fastest vehicles. They're zero to 60 isn't the fastest. Like they can't corner as well as a rally car or a formula one car. But really where they they excel is the suspension. I mean, a trophy right. truck has 36 inches of wheel travel. That means the wheel can travel up and down 36 inches. It can hit a three-foot square edge bump at north of 100 miles an hour, and the cab stays level. 
when you ride in these vehicles or drive these vehicles, your brain literally has to rewire itself to understand what's going on. Like I remember the first time I rode in a trophy truck, I had to get out and like look at it and think for a while, like <laughs> what just happened? I had to process it. Yeah. Right. Cause like you're in it and you're like, it's happening and you know, you it's, it's, you're, you're absorbing it, but you can't really process it until afterwards. Right. And then you, you're like, you kind of, you kind of like floating a little bit, hundred percent, but then you can still feel the bumps and everything though, but it's not like how you would feel them. Um, yeah, in a normal vehicle, it's a completely like, different feeling. And that's the thing is like, we're so used to driving a street vehicle and you're like, watch out for the curb. Yeah. Watch out for this. And you're like, like with the trophy truck, you can slide sideways over that curb. And you're like, did you feel anything? And that's just because of the dynamics of the vehicle. And that's really what makes us special, right? There's no other vehicle on the planet that can do 160 miles an hour over the nastiest terrain in the world, which... Mm. Fortunately, we have right outside of Las Vegas here uh, on the on the Mint 400 course. It is out, I take you out there and you look at stuff and you're like, you can't. You could crawl over this, but yeah. you're gonna get flats everywhere. But it's like we call it cleach. It's like embedded sharp rock, and it generally when you get tire spin on it, it just is the roughest, nastiest stuff for tires. Right, so it's just incredible that we can do the speeds for 400 miles over that course. Right. I mean, you go out and look at it, and you're like, "Why would you do this?" Right. Yeah. And it's you know obviously it's the challenge of it's man versus nature, man versus machine, man versus man. You know, it's it's insane competition. How how did you guys get involved in like like don't you guys actually own those series now? Like if you. Yeah. you Better since you're here, like real off the series that you own. <laughs> yeah, no, um, we uh, we own Unlimited Off Road Racing, which is now three races: the Parker 400, the the Mint 400, and the California 300. Um, so um, Arizona, Nevada, and California. Um, and we got into the promoter side of it just mainly out of frustration, right? So we're the media guys, and right? Yeah, we're doing all this stuff for different companies and. You know, at the time we were doing uh, television work for General Tire, and um, the Mint had been restarted. Uh, the race had traditionally had started in 1968, one of the oldest races, uh, started the same year as the Ball 1000, um, the American version of that here in Vegas. It was started to promote the Mint Hotel. When, when those started, sorry for butting in, but when those started, like how many kind of people raced? Um the first years, it was handfuls of people, right? Like, like it, 10, 20 people or something. Yeah, but it what it captured it captured America's attention. Like it was a different time, so it was like you know in that era, people would go race the Indy five hundred and the Mint four hundred, right? You know, people like Parnelli Jones would would race both. So they'd want to do both, like do asphalt yeah. and go in the dirt. Yeah, and it wasn't like it is now, where they are so stuck in one style of racing that they can't go into multiple disciplines. Right. But um, no, it's just, you know, the Eakins brothers really kicked it off with the the first peninsula run. These these two brothers, you know, had come back from World it's War II. It's always these brothers, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's it, it when you're, you know, and I think that's definitely a thing. Because yeah, it is. Like sure. you're either going to beat the shit out of each other or you're going to yeah. comp- you're, you're going to, you're going to complete something. Right, right. right. 
And, you know, the competitiveness is part of the drive, but it's also like having somebody that, you know, absolutely has your back. That's empowering. Yeah. You know, like I know for me, like I can go out and basically say things that I'm really not sure we can do. And then I could turn around to my brother and go, he's so smart. We can figure this out. Right. So it's, you know, it's, I think that's an important dynamic, but I also think war is an important dynamic. You, you know, you go and have an experience like world war two and that changes you, you mm -hmm. know, when you come back as a veteran and you're like, you know, this is pretty boring. Let's do something crazy. And so the, the Eakins brothers, you know, did this peninsula run where they. So that's like out doing the crazy, like yeah. keeping the adrenaline going that's in you. Yeah. It's like when you think about what they did at the era that they did, it's like, there's no roads, right? They had to stop at, um, they had to stop at, uh, um, post offices to do timestamps so they could prove <laughs> to people that they actually did they the there, whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Right. So it was this whole effort, right? There, no helicopters. No, following there was no, well. there were no gas stations. They weren't even sure like, Hey, can we get gas down there? You know? So there was things that held them up where they're like, they had to go bum gas off of a farmer and, you know, keep going and they did it. But that, that captured the imagination of America. Uh, you know, they were on time magazine and all these big me media outlets of the time. And the guys here in Vegas saw that and they went, that's, that's a pretty good idea to, you know, as a PR stunt. So consequently they sent two buggies from Las Vegas to Reno Tahoe, uh, and, you know, similar similar thing. That got a ton of attention. And the very next year, they're like, let's do a loop race, right? Okay. And it, it started growing. And then um, one of the original guys, a uh, guy who's still around now, Norm Johnson, uh, he reached out to his buddy Mel Larson, who was a, who was a drag race and a um, pavement uh, promoter, and said, hey, you know people. Why don't you make some phone calls and see who we can get? And so they they got you know Parnelli and a, a handful of famous racers to come out and race it. And after that, it was just it was on. Everybody in the world, you know, wanted to race it. And again, you have to understand that like all the actors and athletes at the time they they had all been to war as well. So it was a pretty reasonable thing for them to look at it and go, yeah, yeah, we're gonna race a car. That sounds fun, crazy, <laughs> you know, now, you know, I was talking to Patrick Dempsey, who's raced with us before on why I can't get more of the actors to buy into it. And he's just straight up. He's like, look, actors now are pussies, you know, like they don't want to, you know, do anything that might stub their toe. Um, but I think there's a handful of them out there that, that, you know, definitely will, will come and race with us. But, um, but yeah, it just, it manifested through those two races and grew into the culture that we have now, which is massive global, you mm -hmm. know, um, we've got Dakar, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, we've got rally raids all over the world. Now, uh, we've got racing all over, uh, the West coast and then short course racing in the Midwest and the South. And that all spawned from right here from Southern California. Right. When you mentioned a loop earlier. Like, is that so it's, like, more controllable? So if they did a loop, like, say it's a 20-mile loop or a 50-mile loop, then they can, like, maybe have some gas at a place or something. Like, is that how loop – like, when when does kind of loop thing kind of come involved, do you think? Like, well, 
<clears throat> the the ball one thousand started as a a point to point race, you know. And yeah, so, that's what I'm saying. So like, so point that's to point. difficult, right? Yeah. It's difficult to logistically to support. So yeah. I think <clears throat> the guys up here were like, "Yeah, that's cool, but we, we want to finish the race, maybe." <laughs> yeah, well, they wanted to start and finish the race in Vegas, <clears throat> and and their point was like they're trying to promote a hotel, so the start and finish was actually right here in Las Vegas, down on Fremont Street. Okay. You know, literally on the street, start the race, finish the race, right? Guy pulls up in front of the the hotel all covered in dirt, <laughs> you know, and they hand him a beer, you know? So that's, you know, that's where off-road racing started. I mean, it literally started here and in Baja simultaneously. How big is the Mint 400 now? Because I've, I've been once before. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually go out to point. I just like I was in town. Yeah, um, it, just, I mean we're the biggest race in North America. I mean yeah. over the four days we have sixty five thousand spectators. We had four hundred and thirty teams race with us last year, so twelve hundred and sixty registered racers. It, it's a big event, you know. Uh, we had about twenty thousand people at the start finish last year. We had a really good year last year, or this year rather. Um, People are done with the pandemic. They want to get out and they want to be human beings again. So yeah. um, we're definitely reaping the rewards of that right now. So what's this? You mentioned this unlimited thing, like joining them all together. Like, what was whose idea was that, and what was the reason for doing that? Well, initially we started out and we were just going to focus on the Mint 400, which is which is what we did. Yeah, that's the that's the big one, right? Yeah, that's your big show. And so we did that, and it went well. And we thought, you know, this mindset of like, you know, rising tides will lift all ships, right? Well, that didn't really happen. What happened was a lot of incompetence and failure with other organizations, and, and they couldn't do what we had done, you know, even though that the blueprint was visible. Mm. There was a lot of reasons for that. Um, and so we looked at that, and we, you know, we're getting, you know, bigger non-endemic brands involved, and you know, a lot of them told me, look, we, we were in for the mint, but, you know, if the next race is Silver State, we can't justify that, right? Or if the next race is whatever, you know, it doesn't draw enough people, it doesn't have enough entries, it's not big enough. Um, so uh, last year we launched the California 300, um, and that went really well. Uh, and then uh, earlier uh, this year uh, we were gifted the Parker 400, um, which is another, you know, historic legendary race. And it, it was really interesting because the, the other league had screwed up so bad it got taken away from them. And, you know, the BLM actually called us and said, hey, we would like you guys to run this. And that's because of, you know, my brother and our crew and the way that we operate. You know, like if we say we're going to do something, we do it. We follow through. You know, um, <clears throat> and we run it like a business. We treat people well. We treat people like, you know, hey, we're in business together. <clears throat> you know, let's, we're not always going to agree or see eye to eye, but let's work through it. And and that's been very successful for us. So um, initially I really wasn't looking to get Parker. We're working on some other races. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm really, really glad that we got it because the history of that race is personally very important to me uh that was one of the races that i went to as a kid and it really blew me away you know it's it's on the colorado river right below uh havasu and i showed up at that race in the late 80s as a kid and it was incredible there were 
tens of thousands of people. You know, I'd even venture to say there was around 100,000 people spectating it. No way. Yeah. So why, it, what, so why do you think, like, if that had 100,000 people there and we kind of, like, roll into short course, like, in the Midwest with Crandon, that would get maybe, like, 100,000 or something? Sure. Like, how has Crandon kept that kind of – and then – what happened with Parker? Like, why would it go downhill? Well, it's like in, just, in terms of crowds, it, it it's it's pressure. You know, it's pressure managing people. You know, like when you have that amount of people, that yeah. there's a cost to that. There's right. security. There's bathrooms. There's yeah, foot like a lot of things to manage that, and you have to be willing to take that on. And and the and last, you're in the middle of the desert. I mean, even yeah, though I mean, you, you got the river there. Look, the last twenty years of Best End Desert, Casey Folks is the guy's. You know, amazing. You know, he he built something seemingly out of nothing with no budget, right? But he was building events for the racers, right? And we're we're building events. We're we're the evolution of that. You know, we're looking at it as like we now. You know, we wanted to build X Games of off road. We did that with the Mint Four Hundred. Mm. Now we we're going to build three more, right? And you know, build out our series. So you know. Why do I think that happened? I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, but as it relates to Crandon, Crandon used to be, you know, everything evolved and changed. Crandon used to be one of the races that all the racers here also raced. Right. With the same vehicles. So before there were short course vehicles, you know, they would go race class eight here and then they would all go back to Crandon, you know, and race Flanagan. Flanagan would come out here and race. I have photos of him racing the mint, you know, so it was more connected back then. Um, but Crandon's a very special place and it, it, it's a group of special people. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like one family with some support, you know, made something that was very special and, and a pillar of our culture. I'll be back there this fall, you know, at, at the fall Crandon race. If someone doesn't know what Crandon is and what short course is. It's the Super Bowl of short course. Right. And right. short, like short course in case no one knows, like the way I would describe it, and you would probably describe it differently. Like, because I'm from BMX, so it's a big BMX track for trucks, it's jumps and berms, and you can almost maybe not Crandon, but most short course tracks, you can see the whole race from the grandstand. So it's more of a contained area. Yeah, yeah. That that's a that's that, a very that's a that's a good way of putting it. I okay, cool. I, I put it. <laughs> How would you say? It? I'll turn on my promoter hat. No, okay. it would be like taking every. Um, every weight, every weight class champion in the UFC and putting them in a cage and saying, all right, let's figure out who's the baddest dude here. Right. 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 And that's what Crandon's like. It is absolutely, uh, if not the most turn one at Crandon is probably the most spectacular motorsport spectacle in the world. Like, so they call it like the big, they call it a rush, right? Yeah. Land rush. Land rush. So yeah. all the trucks are all in a row. And this doesn't happen in short course because they kind of do a rolling start, like two yeah. by two, side by side. With Crandon, say it's like 20 plus 30 trucks. So some of the classes more like even behind. Yeah. And it's just like literally like go and they go and all rushed into one corner. Off camber. Yeah, and going like over 100 miles an hour yeah. into that corner. So the camber's off, off cam I'm sorry, the, the camber. The corner is off camber, right? So you're sliding sideways at 100 miles an hour, and you hope the guy inside of you isn't going to screw up because if he right, does, yeah. then you go like dominoes. Yeah, yeah. Like so, the level of like commitment 
like is unparalleled in any other mode. I, I, I would say like, I wonder what it would be like, like Isle of did- Man, you know, maybe like Isle of Man, if they were land starting, like that's what it would be like, but they have, they have longer stretches in Isle of Man. This is a short condensed area. It is like a hundred percent go from the drop of the flag. And it is, I mean, I've been to every form of motorsport there is. I'm telling you, it like, if you're into motorsports, go to Crandon, right? Go watch. I agree. Go watch turn one. You will not be disappointed. It is cool going to, like, see NASCAR and Formula One. And then if you go to, you know, like, on the straight and see how actual quick they sure. go past you is amazing. Yeah. But, like, after maybe, I don't know, like, so many laps, you're kind of like, you, you want free movement of going to other areas to sure. see the race. Um, but where I'm going with this is seeing short course and like supercross and all these, like it's, it is so exciting. It is so amazing. Like it's completely visceral. It's very, very hard for the, uh, am I right in saying it's very hard to show how great it is live on, like through film? Uh, yes. Yes. And no, I think, it's a two-part answer is I think yes in general, right? But also no in the fact that, like, you can't show that in film if you don't understand it. And and most of the time what you're seeing is coverage, right? Yeah. They're like, hey, we got four cameras. We're going to cover the whole track, and that's not, that's not going to uh, get across the dynamics of what the vehicles are doing, mm. right? Um, and so that's the difference between – you know, shooting something cinematically and shooting it for coverage. So, you know, when, when trucks are jumping and you're, you're in a tower, you can't tell how high they're jumping, Mm. right? You can't tell that they're 15 feet in the air and they're absolutely incredible. Right. Mm. Mm. So just no understanding the dynamics of the vehicle and the camera angles is a huge thing. And I I see failure in that, not just in off-road, but in everything, right? Like why, why are you shooting football this way? You should be down on the field. Right. Right. Um, you know, where the cameras on the guys, right? I want to see, I want to see GoPro angles of those guys hitting each other. That would be <laughs> exciting, right? Why aren't they doing that? doesn't make any sense to me. There's small camera tech that they could be doing that. In. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's the problem with being a cinematographer is everything you look at, you're dissecting it and going, right. Oh, I'd do this or would, they should try this. Right. Do you think, um, so obviously, um, doing the mod kids um, films, that is short course. That's yeah. kind of like how I kind of got into the whole dirt side of things and trucks and stuff. Since I've got you in the studio, it'd be really cool to talk about freestyle, whatever is like, how can short course grow? But and we'll go like, when I spoke to you on the phone the other week, you were talking about how big it was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what... It's a bit like the Parker thing, right? Yeah. I mean, how big it was, and now it's not as big. In the 80s, we walked into, you know, Southern California and uh, literally walked into Mickey Thompson events at our stadium. It was like 60,000, 65,000 people just going completely ape. And the vehicles, you know, the short course vehicles of that time were well over a million dollars, the trucks were. They were spectacular. Even in even in a stadium though, it's not big enough really to like. How did they? It how was, do they? How do they well, make it work? You have to remember those vehicles are different from what we have in outdoor 
so so like really what we have in short course is really like motocross to supercross mm-hmm. And what we had in that era were really, well, let's call them supercross trucks. They were smaller. Oh, cool. They were, they had more immediate horsepower. They were lighter. Were uh, they like, um, like UTV size or no, bit bigger than that? They were like a midsize truck. Like but, a Ranger or something? But or? when, you know, after Mickey was killed and those vehicles started being raced on what we have now, which are really outdoor tracks, right? Which is more like motocross. Mm. The tracks were bigger. The vehicle designs changed, right? And now you have a much larger truck that's, you know, running north of 100 miles an hour in these long stretches. So, so that's different from what yeah. short course start. Short course started simply as a marketing tool for desert racing, because what Mickey realized mm-hmm. is like, you know, when he looked at all these other forms of of racing that were bigger, it was because they were accessible because you could walk up you know, to a drag strip or you could walk up to a racetrack and you could see those vehicles race and they stayed within eyesight. So he created that of off for off-road and that's what Mickey Thompson's short course was, which then on, then after he died, that led to outdoor, um, outdoor uh, short course is what we have today that first started with the soda series and, and on and on, right? Yeah, and, so after he died, like he was also the vision. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Mickey Thompson, maybe a bit of the vision kind of lost its way well, as he, people come, came he, on board. He was more than the vision. He was, you know, he was an engineer, you know, vehicle constructor, racer, uh, you know, and a hell of a promoter. Like in terms of a sales guy, like I still ask a lot of the, the OG guys like, hey, were you in the room when Mickey got, you know, the, the Air Force to sponsor, you know, Getting the, sponsorship is really hard. Uh, back then, though, too, you're like, hey, we have this thing that is completely unknown, and we need $2 million bucks from you, right, in the 80s, you know, and he got it. And I would love to be have been a fly in the wall in all those rooms. But, mm. um, I th- yeah, I think when he died, you know, um, his son tried to uh, keep it going and there was just too many things working against them. And then a lot of the racers at the time, and, you know, again, I, I'm still getting, you know, parts of the story, but um, they left and, and, and went to NASCAR with the idea of racing trucks, which is now what the truck series right. is. Yeah. And when they did that, I think they all thought that they were going to be partners in it. You know, like, hey, we're bringing the use. And everyone went to, to the asphalt side of things. Yeah. Yeah, and so a lot of them went and, you know, went over to asphalt because it seemed more stable, right? Right. And, you know, you got to understand that, like, during that time, these guys were making good money, you know, and they had spawned, you know, like people like Walker Evans had been smart enough to spawn a a shock company and a wheel company. So he was racing, you know, it was the saying, race on Sunday, sell on Monday, right? Yeah. So he was racing and getting paid to race, and then he had his manufacturing business, you know, manufacturing shocks and wheels and like they were making really good money. So when the, when the party was over, you know, a lot of them hadn't planned for what if this happens, you know, no, nobody thinks like, you know, the guy running the whole show is going to end up getting murdered, mm. right? That's not really something you write into a business plan. And, and, and I think of that era too, like money was coming so easy um, for them that they were on, they were on high and they were like, this is great. Everything's great. We have, you know, all this cash flow, all this opportunity, and then boom, it's over. 
and you know it took a couple years but but you know that that series went away and uh you know ever since then off-road's been lost you know Mm. and and we you know fortunately we grew up in that era and we saw all those things and 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 really what what it's it's lost but not lost no but it hasn't been found by you know if you look at like a big like golf for instance like what tiger woods he was like bigger than golf right lance armstrong he was bigger than cycling yeah if off-road could get that you know sometimes like it takes one person yeah that that's part of it is like the the characters you know so so, so like how about um bringing up um like say the future so because what i want to ask you like how to how could short how can short course grow is one question sure and two how can like i guess it's like you i mean ufc is a media company sure. right amazing media company it's a lot easier to promote two people fighting each other than 40 people in a class with helmets on racing uh it is and it isn't i mean when you look at the history of the ufc when the when dan and the fertitas bought it it was it was illegal yeah. You know, I mean, they only got licensed in New York a few years ago, you know? So, like, the the amount of hurdles that they had to overcome was, like, really, it was a bad investment. Yeah, no, what, what I'm saying, though, is, is it's easier to market this person versus this person, right? Two people. Like, if you look at it like a, like a Netflix documentary, like, it's about, like, it's about this guy that killed someone and you can have a hundred people just talking about that one person. So it's very focused. Sure. Right. So the, so fighting, boxing, UFC, it's very focused on two people. When it comes to racing, even NASCAR formula one, not everyone knows who's in the car, what the team is, who's behind that helmet and stuff. That's a lot. It takes a lot more money to promote that as a whole, but with short course, like, it seems to be like when you say Mickey Thompson, boom, big name, is like, can you do that? Can you say that today? Well, I don't. I, I think it's about character development. I think that the responsibility of the league is to do that. How, how do you think that can happen? It's storytelling. It's content. Right. right? But and who's going to be able to do that? You're going to have to have like 20 mad medias be really passionate to be able to do that, right? Well, you need one mad media but the, but the, you know, like I'll pick on Lucas, right? Like where Lucas failure was, where one of their failures was like, they didn't promote the racers, right? They promoted Lucas, the series, right? And, and that's just a shell. And, you know, if they would have gone out and put, you know, dollars and effort behind promoting each one of these athletes, you know, through different mediums, you know, they, they had them, you know, at one point they had McGrath, they had, Deegan, they had Pastrana, they, I mean, they had everybody. They, they just didn't do anything with it. They filled the grandstands, though, at what they had. They did, but, that, you know, I mean, again, like, let's compare it to, like, that's cool to say that, yeah, you filled some grandstands in Lake Elsinore, so what, how many people? I don't know, five, 6,000 probably. Let's say 20, right? That's still not 65,000. Yeah. Right? So you're still, you still haven't achieved what Mickey did. So... I think, you know, that the other thing is that that era of racers, you had you had stars, you know, you had stars you, coming out. You had Walker yeah. Evans, you know, you had Ivan Stewart. You had people that like and, and Ivan Stewart's a really good example because Toyota put money behind him and made him a household name, right? 
So I was. So you need something like that. Yeah, but you need it's. But again, it's the support of the the manufacturers, the the you know all the uh, aftermarket manufacturers. It's support of the the league as well, and ultimately that's the league's responsibility is to drive that, right? Like one of the things that the UFC has done very well is their character development. Yeah. And they're playing a really hard um, numbers game, right? Because, I'll, and I'll pick on one situation. So, like, they have this this Irish kid who's, they're hoping, follows in the steps of. Is that Ian Gary? Uh, well, yeah, him. Him too, but uh, Patty the Batty. Oh, yeah. Right? And it's like, it's cool, but, like, now that guy's gotten to a level where it's, like, his next two fights it's critical. Like it's that's that's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, he's in the deep end in, in a in a division that's very, you know, got tough competition. It's make or break. Like you just so, lose. So you're the UFC and you've invested all this money into promoting this guy, and you're like, doesn't really look like he's going to pass the test. You know, my opinion is he's not going to pass the test, right? So, you know, how do you do that? The the fortunate thing for me. You know, in, in our former racing is I've got 1,260 characters, right? <laughs> so that's a good thing, yeah. right? I just need to pluck the ones that I'm like, you know, okay, cool. I can't support every single one of them currently, but I can help <laughs> guide them, right? Yeah, give me a million dollars. Well, no, I mean. <laughs> 1,200 people. It, it's, it's part of our responsibility is to help teach them and show them how to, uh, you know, promote themselves, thereby promoting the sport and the culture and the league, right? Well, I think like so, but but back to mod kids really quick. Yeah, I was gonna say like th this that started what we that's what we started to do. Like we saw the absolutely. future of off road, it, and it was beautiful. Spent a lot of money doing it. Yeah, it was beautiful, and I got it right away because the the gift that we were given when Razor launched the 170 and 570 was all of a sudden we had youth racing. We, yeah, we had it before with trophy carts, but but what happened is that trophy carts quickly got went from being twenty thousand dollars a vehicle to a hundred mm. so so then you you priced out all these people so what we wanted was something that any family in america could look at and say mm, i can put that money together to put my kid and, and that's starting to happen now with the utvs 100%. because you can finance them like yeah the old, you know, the vehicle, the I mean the elite vehicles you can't really finance it's normally like people with high disposal income that race when you when you look at it now I, i'm totally excited about our future right yeah. because we've never had this like our culture has been around for a little bit over 50 years and we've really never had youth racing you know teenagers some kids get lucky their dad has money uh they get in a 16 car or something when they're pretty young uh but very very little right now we have this massive wave of kids that already have come up like we're getting the first like i would call pro level wave right now uh with mitch guthrie uh rj anderson i mean those kids started in they, trophy yeah cuts, they started in the car right? right and and on and on you know uh and there's so many kids that are so good and i'll tell you actually this is a really i love telling this story so a couple of years ago uh, i was in dakar and i went over to saudi arabia to see how i was curious how this was going to work and we're standing at the end of the stage and, you know, we, Carlos signs and Ciro Dupre, like all the Dakar guys who've won it multiple times, like the heavies, right? <laughs> and and uh, they're watching uh, the finish of, of the UTVs. And uh, Ciro Dupre is like, I do not understand how these, these boys are so fast, 
right? It's just incredible. They're just so fast. And I'm like, I looked at them and I'm like, I was polite about it. I said, yeah, I go, they're, they're really fast because they all started when they were six years old. Yeah, they're like born in the dirt. Yeah. And so by the time they're in their uh, late teens, early 20s, they're, they've already, they've been driving for, you know, a decade or more, yeah, yeah. right? If and you're they, six and a decade later, you're still only 16. Yeah. And we've never had that before. Right. So, you know, I'm looking at Cyril and I'm like, hey, the, the days of the, the old guys club of like you being 60 years old and winning Dakar, I, I think those days are numbered because these kids are just so fast and so good at a young age and they're just processing information quicker, right? right? They're able to recover quicker, you know, all the attributes of being young without, you know, the learning curve because they've already started the learning curve at six, right? And there's something about racing where, you know, learning, you can tell everybody everything about it, but learning the feel of it, you know, the the ass computer, whatever anybody wants to call it, the ass dyno, yeah. right? It's just like you get into a car and you you feel it and you become one with it. And you're right. just like, you go, right? And that's what those kids are capable of doing, you know, because of how much time they put in off-road. So I, I'm really excited about, you know, the future of off-road. And it was really cool when I saw you guys do Mod Kids. I was like, all right, that it was like something in my head. I'm like, we need to do something to prop the kids out, to get them pumped up, to make them understand that we we – appreciate them we want them here mm. you know and we want to grow them into future you know off-road stars because you you ask earlier like where's my connor mcgregor uh, one of those mod kids is definitely gonna right. be one right? right yeah you know and there's I gonna be so, yeah. i don't think there's gonna be one i think there's gonna be a lot of them there is there's quite a few now like because we filmed like, like i think like 20 families yeah you know 20 plus kids and like, I won't reel them. I don't want to reel them off because I'll forget one well, or whatever, them, but they're know, all pro now. Yeah. And a lot of them are racing with us now in the desert. Like yeah. we started, we started youth racing with UTV world championships seven years ago. Okay. And that was like, really like kind of, we didn't, we weren't sure what was going to happen and it just exploded. And I'm sure in, in the youth side, you probably saw it in the youth side as well. Right. Yeah. Like when you did it and went, Whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you when you extrapolate America out, America's an interesting place because we're very, you know, uh, vehicle centric. So you know, even though uh, motorcycle racing off road has become very successful here, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were talking <clears throat> a couple of days ago, and like you go to Lorella Lens and you see that, and you're like, holy cow! Like mo like you know, motocross and supercross. Like that'll never die, right? You know, one because the the culture that's already built. The other thing is it's not that expensive. Yeah, you know, it's like a, yeah, when you see when you go into a store or something, you see like even like a MotoGP bike, you go, "Whoa, that's quite cheap." Yeah, but, compared but, to like trucks and things but like in, that. You too, you, you like update it to now. Like, okay, now we have all these kids who start on electric scooters. Yeah, oh, they, yeah. you know what I mean. They get yeah, yeah. the vibe, right? Yeah. They're like. Right. Oh, this is cool. Like they understand balance and they start understanding all these things. And then, you know, it's like, I feel like a little bit of like, there should be like a intermediary drug dealer. That's like, all right, kid, you, you like the electric scooter. Here's, <laughs> here's a two banger. Right. And now you can go a lot faster. Right. So yeah. I think that, you know, the electric bikes offer a new opportunity 
uh, for bikes and, and really for us as yeah, well. Everyone's jumping on scooters and bikes. Like I was like just going down the road the other day and uh, this kid was on a, on a, I think it was a bike, like electric bike. Yeah. And we weren't going that fast, but we were going like 40 yeah. or 35 or something. And I'd, I was very wary of like, does this kid know that I'm like literally right by him? So like, do I go like 60 to get by him? Do I slow down? Then he's looking behind. So, you know, there's these kids on bikes going the same speed as cars and sure. trucks now, which is kind of weird. I, I, I dig it. I, I, it's funny. I'm not saying I don't dig it. I'm just saying like in that experience, it was weird because no, I, 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 I didn't. I didn't want to run the kid over. No, I normally yeah. you just fly by a, a bicycle, you know, a bicyclist, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's definitely there's some etiquette there for sure that that I don't think has been necessarily defined. That's what I'm saying. That they're like flying. It, you know, like back in the day, like flying cars yeah. was the future. Like, but the reality of that, everyone's just gonna be crashing and like. Go but all I mean, over remember the, the stuff we did on our BMX bikes? I yeah. mean, I, I terrorized our neighborhood. You know, yeah, yeah. I built jumps over streets and, yeah. you know, like. We we would literally roll up to cars and lean, well, you, you know, could, lean wood on the car and use it as a launch ramp, right? That that was a great thing back then. Like I can remember, like as a kid playing war all day in the woods. Yeah, like you're gonna let your kid go in the woods all day now, now knowing what is out there. Right. Like, I think like um, it's just different times. Sure, it's just different times. Like you couldn't the things that you could do back then. You can't do now because like I mean, people yeah. they pull their phone out, yes they're filming and, you, you're on yes social no. media. Look at these Martelli brothers tearing up the neighborhood. Like it would just be like, Hey, you hear about those Martelli brothers like jumping over our car? Like it's just it's just like local news. Right. But like now it can become national news and it can become world news like very quickly. Yeah, I, I would have been famous back then. Yeah. <laughs> you would have been. Yeah, for <laughs> You'd sure. have been in jail. Yeah, well that too, you know. <laughs> the details, right? <laughs> But no, I think that uh, you know, as far as the kids go, it's it's amazing. I, I love it, and it's honestly dealing with the parents is probably the hardest thing for us, right? Like out of all the racers and all the the things that we deal with, the parents are just they're like you know they're like baseball or soccer parents. They're, yeah, they're they're you know they, and they're spending a lot more money as well. Yeah, and but and I get it that they care, but man, they're bonkers, man. It's like your kid is six, chill out, you know, or your kid's <laughs> nine, chill out. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's still, I, I enjoy it because it's like putting money in the bank. Have you got like a team that deals with that? Like so some kind of yeah, like, parent, you know, that like you have security on the back of like, it should be something else. No, it's, it's like, me and my cousin Killian. And all right. it's hilarious because again, he's another kid from Michigan who he showed up out here to go to, you know, Grateful Dead concert with my brother. And, uh, you know, I think that was 14 years ago now or something, something like that. I don't know how many years it's been, but like, you know, we had to go to a short course race to do some filming. And so I'm like, hey, you're coming with me. I'm going to teach you how to, you know, put GoPros on cars. And, you know, that's but- actually quite hard. Like do, filming the mod cuts, the mod kid stuff. Yeah. Like we didn't have that many crews, but we may have like three crews following two families at the same time. Yeah. And then part of, part of it is like when we get the footage back, like get more GoPro footage, get more GoPro footage. And like, Back then, like it was just it's just the logistics of getting the camera, putting it on, having the kid turn it on. Yeah. Because a lot of the time they would they turn it, it off. And they, adult they think, racers are the same way. Okay. I've had adult racers turn like look at it and, and get confused and shut yeah. it off. Right. Yeah. That so, happens a lot as well. So, so like you, now, like with the mint and in our races, like we literally 
<clears throat> excuse me, we literally have a GoPro tech stand there, look at them, turn them on, make sure that they're going. And then, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've built these big signs, right? For the co-drivers as they come through the infield, mm. it says, wipe your GoPro because <laughs> they always <laughs> get dirt on them. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we get laps of, of people racing with dirt on them. Right. Yeah. I bet I, and I, so when I can remember going to the race and I was going to say, I'm going to be like a GoPro tech yeah. right there. But, um, it was hard. It's a lot. It's like, well, I couldn't believe how hard work it was. It was like, I just wanted to almost like give up. I mean, I'm not like a tech person, but like how easy could it be to put in place? It is quite hard, but I mean, well, maybe it's easier now, maybe because there's more, you know, like the stickies and, you know, this technology has improved. We ended up actually, it's a funny side story. Probably designed something, right? Yeah, we, we designed <laughs> a, a roll bar mount. You know, and it's totally over the top, like we do everything, you yeah. know, and it's like billet aluminum. And, but I mean, you're going to put a $400 camera, and the expectation is you come back with this, you know, bitching, you know, piece of content. Yeah. You know, the mount no, there, there can't was, be plastic. Yeah, there was. There was, um, oh man, mine's going to go blank. Uh, there, there, there was a family in the, mod, in the Modcock class that they were, they were filming a lot of their own uh, media content themselves. Yeah. And and the father had designed like a special mount, you know, made aluminum, whatever, yeah. for for the GoPro, and then he would sell them at the track. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's exactly what we did. And um, but then the other part of it is then you got to go through hours and hours of footage yeah. just for one team. At least it's not analog though. Yeah, like going back to the analog yeah. days of going through yeah. stuff like digital's. Yeah, trying to you know where, where did that crash happen? You know, like editors they want the crashes, right? Yeah. So like, well, they want the drama, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's still challenged. Now we're, you know, we're using, um, you know, Starlink to do some streaming in car. Oh, yeah, tell me about that. Was it, cool. It's really cool. Um, you know, we we helped or we didn't help. We pioneered, um, in car, and you know what we've been using for the last couple of years is a, a, a box that's basically got seven seven different. Uh, um, cellular cards and it. it's called a cellular array mm -hmm. and, and basically it's just hunting for cellular signal you know and whichever the best signal it, whichever network is you got that signal then that's what it's pushing data through and so you know we got a hold of one of these boxes which wasn't intended for cars so we had to you know make some modifications to it, it you know the cooling fan had to be bigger and you know all this kind of stuff well the problem is is like we're racing in areas that don't have cell towers, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's limited coverage. So as we would race our course, there's about 20 or 30% of it that was blacked out. So um, we knew that that it was possible to do it with Starlink, and we had some people help us with it, and, you know, it worked pretty good, you know? And now it's, it's getting better, and we're getting to the point where the cost has come down significantly, and yeah. we're, you know, probably only a year away from everybody being able to have these units in their car and, you know, live stream on their social media as well as give us those feeds uh, with multiple cameras as well as data from the cars. So it's really exciting. It's really cool tech to push forward, and I, I think it'll help grow our sport. On on the three series you own, like, what is the um, kind of, like, and like the end goal on terms of the media, like, are you broadcasting the whole event live? 
yeah. you then do like like some kind of edit, like a shorter version of the race. Yeah, I mean, we 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 typically do a live stream of the entire event, right? And then we'll do post edits of like highlights and, and different things that we think deserve another look. Um, and that's really how the world works now is they want to yeah. see it live. And then after the event, they want to see the highlights and that's right. it. Yeah. You know, like we were talking about, we stopped doing TV a year ago, um, just cause we weren't getting the results we wanted. Um, is that like in, in racing, like, especially on the short course stuff, like the races would be broadcast like two months after the event. Yeah. And then that's probably why it wasn't quite, but that, that well, worked, that, that worked because they got the sponsors yeah. To get it on TV, which I mean, is a look, key thing for the sport. But. At this point, any coverage, any eyeballs, that's good. Because we're we're a fraction of motorsports, and motorsports is a fraction of traditional sports. So we're in the game of new eyeballs. We know the yeah. product that we have is, if not the best, one of the best products in motorsports. I mean, like I, all respect to Formula One and Rally and NASCAR and, and all that kind of stuff, but there's nothing – absolutely nothing like seeing a trophy truck run uh, 160 miles an hour over three foot whoops it is mind bending, you know, and the sound and the visceralness of it. Like it, it, you feel it in your chest. Like people talk about, people talk about, um, uh, drag racing and drag racing is cool. You know, for a split second, it's like Godzilla yelling at you, but it's very like, okay, that's it. Whereas what we have, it's like there's so many different inputs. Like there's the sound of the vehicles, what the vehicle's doing, the spray of the dirt, the, you know, the contact with the other vehicles, which we allow. And, you know, uh, and then, you know, like at the Mint, we've designed a start-finish area that has this big jump. So they're, you're, you're from, you know, basically 50 feet away from, you know, a trophy truck jumping 15, 20 feet in the air. And it's you you hear all this and feel it, and then you hear the thump of them land in the dirt, right? It's like a little mini earthquake. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so all those things, there's nothing like that in motorsports besides what we're doing. And it's just a matter of sharing that with people, right? Yeah. Once we once we show it to you, like again, it's like being a drug dealer first hits on me. <laughs> I gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so for us, I don't care if it's TV or live stream or TikTok, whatever I can do to get new people to look at what we're doing, we're going to do it, you know? So, so we're interested in still doing television. It just has to be, you know, the right thing. We just diverted that money that we were spending on television into the live stream. And that's, that's paid off significantly. Yeah. That makes, us. that makes good sense. So, you know, what the future holds, we don't know, but I can tell you, we're going to exhaust every single you know, opportunity that we have to expose the sport of off-road racing to uh, more people. What do you think um, when I was saying like our sponsorship is, is quite hard to get, especially like paid sponsorship. Um, do you see like e even in the Lucas days and shooting the mod kid stuff, I was kind of thinking like we need to bring someone new to the game. Sure. You know, like, are you always kind of like, have you, are you always like hunting for like this new, a new company, a new startup? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this, it's 24 seven for me. Like I'm here in Vegas during fight week. Yeah. You know, and I'm having meetings with potential sponsors. Okay. Right. So um, one thing that annoys me is like, okay, we are, we're, we're in Vegas and, um, and gambling is a big thing. 
Um, so like all like the sport, like anything like so the big sponsors are like crypto, sure, or some kind of gambling site. They seem to be the main two sponsors that all other podcasts get, <clears throat> um, sporting events get, and stuff. Is there anything where other than crypto and gambling? Yeah, I that mean, could be really big sponsors. Yeah, look, there, there's everything. I mean, excuse me. When you look at what we sell, we sell trucks, we sell tires, we sell oil, we sell gas. Yeah, you know anything that you can put on a vehicle, we sell all that stuff. Half that stuff exists because it came from off-road racing. You know, so um, the potential of sponsors is is massive. I mean, we we're already you know it, you know attracting. Uh, you know, some of the biggest blue chip companies in the world, right? And we're just scratching the surface. And again, it's a, they don't know us, you know, it's like many of those brands have never even spent money in racing, mm-hmm. you know, let alone off-road racing. And so it's us putting that value proposition in front of them. And it's also us raising the value proposition, which we've done with the mint, but now we've got to do it with Parker. We've got yeah. to do it with the California 300. Um, but the good news is, is like, you know, when you when you look at the math of the situation, you know, we did it with the Mint, which is great because it has this tradition and all this stuff, but Vegas is only 2 million people, right? So, and 1.8 million of them are from out of town, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's, it's a hard market when you look at those numbers to get people to participate. We're competing with a lot here in this town. It's a great town. The people are great. Generationally, they've grown up going to this this race and it's important part of the culture of the city but you know i mean f1's here now they they have an N, the nba team coming they have an nfl team already yeah. they're going to get everything right? right right so we've we've got a you know uh fight for our our portion of mind share and it's you know it's not going to be easy but when you look at the other places that we're going racing like parker for example you know, is within a two and a half hour drive of Phoenix yeah. and, and that whole area, that's like 17 million people, right? Then you, you go over to California and that's, you know, 29 million people in, in the two and a half hour drive, which is by the way, the Mecca for off-road, right? Yeah. And it's only like two hours or so from, from here, from yeah. Vegas. So, so you start, you start looking at the upside of that Our upside's huge. Right. And so I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be a lot of work. But I'm really excited about the future of what we're doing. And, you know, with youth racing, with UTV racing, with short course, because um, you were asking me one of the questions about short course or like what can be done to grow it. And part of it is that it needs to be reattached to desert racing because they're, they're, they're the same culture, right? They're from the same culture. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like if people didn't talk about motocross and supercross like Supercross is the entertainment version of motocross. Yeah. You know, like anybody who's a purist is like, Supercross is cool, but motocross is what it's about. So this right? is good. Like, we, we can end it on this. So comparing it to that, like, I totally understand. So if we wrap it up, like, how can short course and desert, like, kind of merge? To, I guess, like, you guys are going to be a big part of it. Yeah. Right? Like, how many years do you think you need? It depends on how much money we get. <laughs> money speeds everything up. Um, yeah, yeah. No, but I can tell you, like, short course is important to us, and we will be integrating it with with our events. Okay, you know? I'm happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I I, lo- I mean, I absolutely love short course. I could I could 
you know, I it was one of the first forms of off-roading that I was introduced to and seeing it back in the day with Mickey, I know it's possible. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's up to us to, to, you know, bring that or unlock that value again. Okay, cool. I think we can wrap up there. I think that's cool. All nice. The future of off-road and definitely appreciate you coming down today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.